having been made new through faith in Jesus, being given hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone, being transformed from children of wrath to children of God, isn't it so appropriate that we should sing together of the greatness and faithfulness of our God, that we should express our gratitude to God for what Jesus has done, that we should gather in his name again and again and again to be reminded of what he has done and be reminded that God isn't finished yet working in us and that God uses people like us. And we're going to see a connection to that theme in our text today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and we'll pray together and then look more closely at our continued study there. Let's pray. Triune God, we worship you. But it may be the case that there are souls here today that are not right with you. And so we, play, we pray for conviction and clarity of understanding who you are and, and who Christ is and what he has done, clarity of understanding who we are and our desperate need for Jesus to save us. God, grant, grant clarity and transformation so that they will respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are, are confident, assured, because we know that you have changed us and given us your spirit, God, we're, we're confident and we're reassured as we look into your word that, that such is what you have accomplished on our behalf. God, we're, we're confident and we're reassured by the work of your spirit bearing fruit in our lives. And yet, God, we're still so far from the perfection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we long to be like him. And so humble us and change us by the truth of your word. Use us by your grace and for your glory. And God, I pray that this text today will help us to more faithfully follow our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. We were just recently in our study of Acts talking about the fact that Luke has been establishing uh, the pattern that is uh, being followed by this missionary team of, of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, soon to be joined by others. In our emphasis on that last week, we, we described that we should follow their pattern. One of the things we didn't get to hear yet, though, was an, an, an example of Paul's evangelistic preaching when, whenever they entered a new town and, and they would go to the synagogues first to preach. So today, we're going to get to see that an example in order that we might try to follow the pattern of Paul's evangelistic preaching in the way that we proclaim the gospel. So our focus today, though, as I, I I wish I, I had time, but I do not, so in honor of the approximate 35 minutes or so that we, 35, 40 minutes that we preach, instead of going an hour and 10, I'm going to divide this sermon in half, um, and so we'll look at the second half of, of Paul's message 
next week as well. So our emphasis this week will be on God's faithfulness to his promises and fulfillment of his promises through the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll make it our aim to proclaim God's faithfulness and fulfillment in Christ Jesus for the good of those who believe. We're going to talk first then about the context of evangelistic preaching. We said last week that there's never uh, any proclamation or anything that happens in our lives that happens in a vacuum. There's a specific time in history that things occur. There's an actual place where things occur, and there are people involved. So let's look at Acts chapter 13, uh, 13 to 16. And as we read there, pay attention to the people and the place, and of course, keep in mind Paul and Barnabas's context here. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Well, Paul isn't going to turn down this invitation. So Paul stood up and he motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, Listen, pause there for a minute to consider the things we just talked about. God uses people to reach other people. That sounds relatively obvious, doesn't it? God uses people to reach other people. God uses the people that he has made his own to tell of his faithfulness and his fulfillment through Jesus Christ. So that by that word and the work of the Holy Spirit, he makes new people to belong to him by faith. This missionary team in our text is now being referred to. So speaking of these people God uses, this team is now referred to as Paul and company, Paul and his companions. As we talked about last week, this shift isn't to elevate Paul, but a simple description of who has become the point man and the primary servant, the primary servant leader of this team, that God uses gospel proclamation by his people to reach other people. Barnabas and Paul are are just such evangelists, and evangelism means to be proclaimers of the good news. We, too, are evangelists. We are proclaimers of the good news. In Christian circles, we often talk about witnessing. We often talk about sharing our faith. I thought I'd point out to you this morning that the New Testament never really talks about us sharing our faith. The New Testament talks about us proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. We are proclaimers of Christ. Furthermore, all gospel proclamation takes place in some location at a particular time with people who need to hear it. That may be as near to you as your place of work, or it may be as far as somewhere that there is no Bible translation in the native tongue, or where the government subscribes to a false religion and directly opposes the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in our gospel proclamation, 
we take into account, like Paul does, the time and place in the particular audience. So we, we see this development in the verses that we just read. These guys travel by ship, uh, this small band of missionaries travels from Cyprus to a port city near Perga in Pamphylia. It's here we, we learn that John Mark leaves the team and he goes back to Jerusalem. So on your map, you'll see that in the region of Italia and Perga, one dotted line returning to Jerusalem, that represents John Mark. Luke doesn't comment on it here, but we find out later that Paul didn't approve of this departure instead of Mark continuing in the work with them, Acts 15, 38. But we'll come to that again later. So for now, from Perga, they come to another Antioch, but this is in the region of Pisidia, so don't confuse this with the launching location, the launching at Antioch in Syria. This is Antioch of Pisidia. But in the synagogue, note the context of this place. It's important that he's speaking in the synagogue and the kind of people that uh, Paul is talking to. They get to sit and participate in what was the normal center of synagogue services, the reading of the law and the prophets. Then oftentimes someone would teach a lesson. So in this case, the leading elders who have been responsible for, for the, the, the leading elders or the when it talks about an elder for the synagogue or these leading elders, it's whoever's responsible for the preparation and organization of the service. So they send some kind of message to Paul and Barnabas, and they invite them to speak a word of encouragement for the people. Now, hospitality was important in their culture and tradition. So new Jewish visitors in a community would have been quickly known. These elders would have undoubtedly heard something about these traveling rabbis, Paul and Barnabas. So they're invited to say something in the service in the synagogue. Paul isn't going to let this offer pass up. So that sets up Paul's evangelistic preaching in the Pisidian Antioch synagogue to Jews and God-fearers. Remember, he's speaking in the synagogue. This is Paul's audience the people who are listening are Jews and God-fearers, those who believe in the one true God and are, at least to some degree, submitting to his authority in the scriptures. So a lot like the kind of people who are gathered here this morning. People who believe that there is a God, believe that God speaks with authority from his word, and so they're, they're listening with a certain kind of ear to what is being taught. Those who fear God in this case could range from formal proselytes to Judaism, proselytes being those who are, are following the, specific require, the specifics required by law, by Jewish law, so Mosaic law, that would be circumcision, observance of sacrifices and feasts, etc. And it could range to people who fear God, who worship the God of Israel more generally as the one true God, without becoming proselytes. So Paul is speaking to those who uh, fear God and those who are Jews. We keep that in mind that Paul's speaking to those kind of people. Because when we share the gospel, we might be speaking to other people. Some of you are, are sharing the gospel with your children. And, and when I hear you guys share your testimonies, if you grew up in a Christian home, you might often say, I always believed that there was a God. My parents always taught me 
that God's word was our authority. My parents always told me that I was a sinner who needed Jesus Christ to save me. You heard these things again and again. But oftentimes when you share the gospel with others who perhaps are not growing up in such a home, we have to first establish that it's right to fear God on his own terms. And yet, even though we need to establish that it is right to fear God, we ultimately use the same processes that Paul will use here with his audience. Interpreting Scripture as God has revealed himself to mankind from creation through his covenant promises with Israel, leading up to the necessity and supremacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say this again. Paul will present the gospel in such a way to Jews and God-fearers that even as we follow his example, even when we speak to those who do not yet fear God, we will follow the same process. We will express from Scripture, interpreting the Scripture as God has revealed himself to mankind from creation through his covenant promises with Israel, leading up to the necessity and supremacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is how people will be convicted that God is to be feared. And that is how people will conclude, as we will continue to see, that God is faithful and that he fulfills his promises through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how people will be exposed to their need to respond in faith to Jesus. So how might a person become convinced that it's right to fear God? How do you become convinced? How, are your thinking, how, how do you think your children will be convinced? Or how will your neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends, by telling them as much as we can, as clearly as we can, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, of God's revelation of himself in the scripture? That's why we're obsessed with this book. These pages are from God and hold the key to being in right relationship to him now and forever. So when we speak to the pagan, the one who doesn't fear God, we must still bring them to the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and to the New Covenant scriptures, the New Testament, because that is where God has revealed himself. And also, before we move on, remember to let it sink in, a real place and time in a specific location. And real people, particular people with hopes and dreams, struggles and strife, who need Jesus, even as we ourselves so desperately need Jesus. Whatever the place and whomever the people, we make it our aim to proclaim God's faithfulness and fulfillment in Christ Jesus for the good of those who will believe. So that's our next emphasis, Paul's message, the content of evangelistic preaching. And the way Paul begins this, as I warned you, I have to divide this into parts. So we're going to get through the first part of Paul's sermon. He's rehearsing the history of God's faithfulness that leads to fulfillment in Jesus Christ in verses 17 to 25. So as, as we progress through this message from Paul to the Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, take note that this is a summary that Luke gives us. Undoubtedly a very accurate summary, but also an efficient one. 
If I can read the whole sermon in several minutes, there can be no doubt that Paul filled this out substantially more in his actual delivery. He may have had some time constraints when he's preaching in the synagogue. Later, Paul preaches so late at night that Eutychus falls out a window. So we know that Paul doesn't always preach briefly. This is, this is undoubtedly a summary, and Paul filled these things out, but Luke gives us an, an accurate summary. Paul's proclamation in this passage, as I mentioned to you, or I haven't completely explained this yet, has three movements. We just get to the first part. Each of these movements is marked by Paul directly addressing the people to whom he is speaking. He does this in verse 16 that we just read, again in verse 26, and again in verse 38. Each time he does that, we kind of notice a shift in what he's emphasizing. So first, after verse 16, there's a historical review of God's faithfulness leading up to his fulfillment in Christ Jesus that we're going to look at today. Then there's a more careful explanation of what Jesus accomplished, how it came about. And there's, of course, a particular emphasis on Christ's death and evidence of his resurrection. There's eyewitnesses and scriptural testimony that it makes sense that Christ would die and and rise again, verses 26 to 37. Finally, there's a, a clear expression of why it matters. Why does it matter? In order that those who believe in him may be forgiven and justified by faith, but also with a warning that scoffers stand condemned and will perish. Verses 38 to 41. But back to the first of these three movements, Paul proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to his promises. The Christ has come. Paul begins his message by presenting a historical review of God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel. Read with me beginning at verse 16 after he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. First, we see Paul here describing God's faithfulness to his covenant with the people that he chose to make his own. When Paul says God chose our fathers, that would bring to mind for this audience the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In the same breath, he speaks of the people's sojourn in Egypt. When God first greatly increased their number, making them into a great or, quote, exalted people, and then God Paul uses a play on words. Then God led them out with an exalted arm. God made them into an exalted people, and he led them out with his exalted arm, a reference to his own strength. Then in the wilderness for 40 years, he put up with them. Or another translation, uh, some of the texts uh, that we have say he carried them. 
Either way, both of those would have a positive connotation of God's patience and his care for these people. In this example of preaching the gospel, Paul chooses not to emphasize the law here in this section, in the historical review, but, but rather he will emphasize it in the application section for this people of the law of God. I'll just read it to you there from verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, undoubtedly filling that out some for his listeners. But now instead, Paul reminds his listeners that God conquered before them seven nations that inhabited the region of Canaan in order to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his descendants that this would be their promised land. The seven nations are recorded in Deuteronomy 7.1 as being the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. But God conquered them all to bring them into the promised land. As a reminder to you New Testament believers, this promised land of Israel becomes to us a picture of a yet future promised land for all of God's people the new heavens and new earth, where we will dwell in perfect peace and rest in the presence of God forever. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Paul says all of this took about 450 years, which would be around 400 years in Egypt and 40 in the wilderness and approximately 10 for the conquest. He now speeds through the period of the judges to get to Samuel, the last judge, who was also a priest and a great prophet. And in this portion of historical review, Paul is setting up the transition where Israel has a king. So when the people asked for a king, God first gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned over them for 40 years. But this audience would know that this king was not the one through whom God's anointed one would come. God removed Saul and raised up David, David the son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah, a man after God's own heart who would follow God's will. To this servant-hearted shepherd king, God reinforced his promises, and he established yet further in a covenant with David that through his line the Messiah would come. So although Paul skips over some of Israel's history now, he has gotten to the point where he can show that Jesus is the promised Messiah to come from the seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, the seed of David. And he continues in verses 23 to 25, of this man's offspring, seed, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel leads to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. Paul's audience readily grasps the significance 
of the terminology of David's offspring. For from his seed was the promised Messiah. And it's right to say that the Savior was sent to Israel. You might recall that Luke recorded the host of angels announcing to the shepherds near Bethlehem at Christ's birth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. To call him Savior in both the the text of Luke 2 and again in Paul saying this in Acts chapter 13 is to say that Jesus is the rescuer, the deliverer. He came to deliver from more than mere political, physical oppression at the hands of Rome or any other world power. Christ came because we, both Jew and Gentile, need to be completely forgiven. We need to be completely free from sin and its consequences. We must be justified before God so that we are not under his righteous wrath against sin. That is where Paul will go with his application to his audience in verses 38 and 39 that we just read. But before turning wholly to the central event and meaning of Jesus' ministry as the Savior, the central event and meaning of Jesus' ministry as the Savior being the cross and his resurrection. But before that, Paul describes the ministry of a final key figure in Israel's history that would set the stage for the Christ to be revealed, John the Baptist. John was the forerunner to the Messiah, making preparation for his coming. Paul highlights two important aspects of John's ministry. First, John was calling all Israel to repent of their sin and then to be baptized as a public display of their sincerity and as a symbol of being cleansed of that sin and preparing themselves to walk in a a new commitment to God. We're ready, we're preparing ourselves. I believe the reference also to all the people of Israel means it's a reference to how widespread and known John's ministry was. He was preaching repentance to all of Israel. So everybody should have heard of John the Baptist. In fact, some were asking if he was the Messiah, which is why he has to give answer. But what John was saying and doing was conspicuous and well-known, so much so that he was asked by the public if he was the Messiah. And this is the, the, Paul's second emphasis about John. In spite of how influential his prophetic ministry, John humbly and clearly declared that he was not the Christ, but that after him was coming the one of their messianic hope and expectation and that he was far greater than John. John gives a vivid picture of Christ's greatness by comparison when he says, he, even though he is a prophet sent by God, he says that he's not, unwor- he's not worthy even to untie the sandals on his feet. This John proclaimed, as he was finishing his course, completing the race of his public ministry God had given him, Because indeed, the Messiah was coming, even in John's own lifetime. Jesus Christ's public ministry began while John was still finishing his course. So John formed the the last prophetic link in Israel's history leading up to God fulfilling his promises through the coming Messiah. 
God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul said in verse 23. Look also ahead at verses 32 and 33 at Paul's message this day in the synagogue, although we have to save that for next time. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises, especially through his sacrificial death and resurrection. So in that next section, Paul will show more specifically how Jesus fulfilled God's plan, particularly by his death and resurrection, and that eyewitnesses and even scripture testify to this truth. Finally, Paul will address to his audience the implication and application of this reality for them, these people, on this day. Because God has fulfilled his promise and plan in Jesus Christ, salvation is offered to you for the forgiveness of sins and freedom, justification from from needing to fulfill the law's righteous requirement because Christ has done it on your behalf. Proclamation of the gospel must always come down to this. God's faithfulness, our culpability, our responsibility for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling God's promise and our need, and then that we must respond to him. I'd like to, just as we review and wrap things up for today, make some concluding applications for us as we, re- we reflect on what we're seeing this far in uh, Paul's message today in Antioch. Remember, in order to accomplish his saving purposes in the lives of individuals, God has chosen to use people proclaiming the gospel to other people. How are you participating? God has chosen to use people proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people for the salvation of lost souls, just as someone did for you. How are you participating? I don't doubt that if you stop and think, you can recall and reflect on who faithfully proclaimed the Lord Jesus Christ to you. Perhaps, or or most likely, probably more than one person. Can you be the beautiful feet of the gospel of Jesus Christ to another? Will you proclaim the gospel? I was thinking this morning about just the practical application of us evangelizing, of us proclaiming Jesus Christ to other people. And I often try to encourage you or others who ask me about this topic to let you know that the first thing we do in this process is that we pray for people. The beginning of our evangelism is is to pray. And then the second thing we do is to build a relationship with them. And in the process of building that relationship, we live faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ who has set us apart. But the third thing that we must do is we must proclaim the gospel. You can't simply live faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is good, and it does draw attention to the difference in your life, but you have to speak about Jesus. And then we entrust 
people into God's care and we continue to pray and, and faithfully present Christ again and again, never knowing what Christ's plan is to do, as we said last week, whom he might save, that's not up to us. We faithfully proclaim our Savior. So can you pray for your lost classmate and become a friend who has been changed because of Christ in you? Can you tell them why you're different? And can you continue to pray and proclaim Christ? I'm also reminded from the text this morning the value of rehearsing the faithfulness of God. You've heard me say recently that I've passed through a season in my life where the wise advice given to me when struggling, suffering, mostly inner turmoil, you know, the, the self-doubt and lack of clarity that happens to us. We, we start to believe things that aren't even true when we're suffering from depression. And the advice given to me was to go to God's word and rehearse the faithfulness of God. And we have been given not only the Old Testament scriptures, but we have all of the New Testament scriptures to rehearse the faithfulness of God. And you rehearse to, your, to, the, to, to yourself by the power of the Spirit at work in you. You rehearse the truth of God's word. God, this is what I know is true about you. And I also know this is what you have promised. You have proven faithful. You will be faithful. Rehearsing the faithfulness of God. We make it our aim to follow the pattern established by Paul and Barnabas, the pattern established by our Lord Jesus Christ, even the pattern established by John the Baptist to finish your course well. Some of us are older and we know we're probably finishing our course. The truth is, no matter how young or old you are, you may be finishing your course and you don't know it. The description given of John's life as if someone is running a race and coming near to the end. You do not know if you are near the end. And so you aim to be faithful and you run with courage and encouragement, knowing that you're nearing the finish line. And finally this morning, as we close and the praise team comes again, and we're going to take the Lord's table together, I just want to challenge you, as you're listening to God's word this morning, that today is the day to respond to God's fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. You need to be made right with God. There is no thing more important than that. And through faith in Jesus Christ, God can and will transform you and make you his own. Let's pray.
Father, we love you and we thank you for your faithfulness. We can never boast as people that we have made ourselves. No, God, you created us. You created all the things that we see. We can never boast that we have been faithful. For from the time of the first man, we have sinned against you, and we rebel, and we go our own way. We wander about acting as if we know better than the sovereign God of the universe. And God, in your faithfulness, you saw fit to choose a people through whom you yourself would make salvation possible. Thank you for giving Jesus Christ to be our perfect sacrificial lamb. Thank you for raising him from the dead to conquer sin and death, to take upon himself your righteous wrath against sin so that we can belong to you by faith. Lord, we desire to be faithful, but we cannot do that apart from abiding in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to continue working in us. Forgive us of our selfish, self-focus, struggle with, ongoing struggle with our sin. Restore us, forgive us and restore us to fellowship with you so that we will be faithful to what you have called us to. In Christ's name we pray, amen.